Hey, everybody. My name is Michael Kaiser. And I'm John Wilson. And welcome to another episode of Make Ours Marvel. This is episode 29 of the show, where we are continuing our journey through 1963 in the lives and adventures and dramas and hopes and passions and dreams of the characters of the Marvel Universe. And uh, this is an exciting time, Mike. I think we're in July. Uh, I think the kids are going to be really happy about really this. July is a really big month. Kids are going to be happy. This is yeah. where things are all starting to come together. In fact, I think every book we talk about tonight, assuming we get through what I think we're going to get through, are all linked with other books. Oh, I never thought about that. For, maybe, really? the, for maybe the first time. That's pretty great. Not um, strong links, but links. Even Sergeant Fury, yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. So July is Marvel's biggest month yet. We actually started this month last episode with the first annual for the Fantastic Four. That same week, we had three more books come out, actually more than three, but we're going to talk about three more books this episode. And we're going to start with the chronologically earliest of the three, which is Sergeant Fury 3. So this is our third Sergeant Fury book, and I have summarized all three. Of that, I am certain. So we've got to figure out why this is happening. And I don't know, but I wish it would stop. <laughs> <laughs> Since we have nine issues in July, hopefully it will throw off this every other thing pattern you've got going on. I don't know why. This one book in particular, I always feel um, wary of summarizing for some reason. Maybe because there's like a smidge of history that I don't want to get wrong or I don't know what it is. I just feel I feel more comfortable when people are wearing spandex, I guess, than... When it's a historical comic book, but history is no, mystery. Yeah, nonetheless, I will ignore all that and do it anyway. So tonight we have Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos number three in a story called Midnight on Massacre Mountain. Dun, dun, dun. Um, also by Stanley and Jack Kirby, as it's been so far every time. Um, and we start out with the Howling Commandos already in a mission. Because that's how they like to start out this book. They are charged with stopping saboteurs, Nazi saboteurs, from invading uh, shore, the shores in England. Somewhere in England. I forget where. It doesn't matter. Um, anyway, and they stop them pretty easily. It's like it's like a whole like page or something like that. And they throw dynamite at them and, and they all run away or get captured or something. So now they have downtime. And they all decide to go out, including Nick, much to everybody else's uh uh, 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 dismay, chagrin, yeah. And uh, so they all go out together and pretty much immediately get into a bar fight, as, of course, the commandos would. Um, and then it cuts to the next day where their captain, Captain Sawyer, uh, gets a call, says they got arrested. So he decides to look into this because that seems unlikely that his men could even get arrested. They're too tough. So he goes looking. It turns out they weren't really, quote unquote, arrested so much as they, I guess, probably just got bored and started playing cards because it looks like the entire platoon is like beat up and stuff. Whoever tried to arrest them, it was like the entire army or something like that. And like (laughs) even in their bear, even in the MPs barracks, they're basically just playing cards while the MPs like with broken arms and stuff are kind of looking like nervous and asking their permission if they can talk to them and stuff like that. So they're not really arrested. It's just kind of a protocol. Anyway, Captain Sawyer shows up and suddenly these brave, you know, strong, toughest men in the world are the scare are big scaredy cats because that's like the only guy who can scare them. And he kind of tells them, you know, you guys have been working really hard. So I think I'm going to give you a vacation somewhere warm. 
nice waters, and then he starts smiling, and they get even more nervous because, rightly so, it's not really a vacation. Next thing you know, we cut to where he sends them, which is Italy. Sounds good, except if it's World War II. And they're on, like, this raft with a machine gun on it, and they're kind of trying to blow through, like, Nazi uh, uh, a barricade, like a boats, you know, whatever they call it. And they get through, and they get on the beach, and, of course, there's there's Italians on, you know, bad guy Italians on the beach, too, and they, like, shoot them. So they go hunker down in the woods, the nearest woods they can find, and that's where Nick tells them they're waiting for a guy to show up to give them further instructions, uh, a uh, – uh, I think they call it an OSS. Don't ask me what that stands for, but it's basically like an American spy. So suddenly the Nazis all get distracted by, you know, uh, dynamite from somewhere else. And while they're away, the OSS shows up with what they call Italian, a group of Italian partisans, which I guess is like their Italian's version of like the French resistance or something. Doesn't sound nearly as cool to me, but whatever. And it, the OSS guy, the American guy, turns out to be none other than Reed Richards. From uh, the Fantastic Four. From the Fantastic Four. But this is pre-Fantastic Four, so no stretchy. And Nick, of course, doesn't know who he is or anything. And nobody knows who Nick is either at this point. So anyway, Reed informs him that what's going on is there's this big mountain called Massacre Mountain, I guess. Awesome name. And inside it is like a valley, and there there's a, a squadron or a troop or whatever of – U.S. soldiers that are pinned down in there and they can't get out because the mountain is swarming with Nazis and they keep shooting at them and they have like the high they have the high ground Anakin so they can't get out and Reed and his partisan group have figured out a way for them to get out they figured out a secret tunnel but unfortunately it's an exit only kind of tunnel and they could they themselves could not get in get past the Nazi barricade to tell the troops how to escape so that's where Nick comes in Nick and the Howling Commandos because they can get through anything right so they go over to the mountain, and at the base of the mountain is this uh, – it's like a abandoned city, as happens often in World War II, I imagine. Think Saving Private Ryan. They came across like 28 abandoned cities in that movie. Yeah. yeah they uh, um, so – and in that city, there's like some, you know, some Italian uh, civilians, and then there's like this reporter – a correspondence reporter from America named Sam. And he's like in their faces, in the Howling Commando's faces, wanting exclusive interviews and stuff. And they all find him kind of irritating for some reason. But anyway, so they sort of push him aside. But we'll get to him later. So then Nick sends a couple of his guys to the east. And they try and go get through the mountain that way. But it was like the Nazis just knew they were coming. And they get forced back. So then he sends them you know, to the south or the west or something. Same thing. It's like they knew we were coming. So then Nick starts getting suspicious and he says, okay, guys, this time I want you to go west. And that's what he says out loud. And then he says west, like what I'm drawing on this paper. But he really draws north on the paper. So they go west, but then they veer north and then it finds out, hey, that worked. And then Nick's like, aha, I knew it. Sam, you're not just an obnoxious reporter. You're a spy. And it turns out he was right, and Sam takes off his hat, and suddenly he looks very stereotypical Nazi German-like. And he says, yes, I was giving them the blah, blah, blah this whole time. And then Dino – hey, I'm starting to know names. Dino, the Italian of the Howling Commandos, um, basically gets real mad because, you know, he doesn't like how his beautiful country that he was born in now looks completely ravaged and destroyed. So he essentially guns him down. Although they also kind of make a little panel that sound, sound, makes it sound like he was defending himself. But not really. It's kind of like that Han shot first thing. You know, he just guns him down, basically. Um, anyway, then they go north and they get through the 
thing and they talk to the American troops and they tell them where the escape route is. It's like behind this Julius Caesar statue or something like that. And uh, they get out. And once they get out, the Germans in the mountains all run away because now, oh, no, we don't have we don't have the advantage anymore. And I don't know, like I think the troops all get a bunch of medals and then our heroes end up like in a raft waiting to be picked up because that's their lot in life. Right. The end. Yeah, not yeah. sure why everyone else got official transport back and the commandos were left on a raft. But, you know. That's just, that's they're, they're mistreated. The toughest, most heroic squad is also the most mistreated, apparently. Hey, I can relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what did you think of this one? Um, it was good. But, it's, you know, they've all been kind of consistently the same. The same good, but, like, it's, like, it's well-drawn, again. It's a lot of humor again, and it's just nonstop page-to-page action again. Like, it never stops. So while I still think it's good, I'm kind of hoping that maybe at some point someone does stop and talk about who they are for five seconds maybe or, right. or something. And there we get a promise of that in the end because I think they say something about introducing a girlfriend or something. So that sounds interesting. Yeah. Is that what next they say? Issues, yeah, that's what, exactly what they say. Yeah. Uh, next issue is a big one. And mm-hmm. the issue after that um, introduces an antagonist that you will recognize. Okay. So, so, and of course, it was cool to see Reed Richards, even though this must be wiped out of continuity at this point. But it was still. Oh neat. yeah, I guess because of the time gap. But yeah, I was I was thinking about saying something when we finished issue two, and I was like, oh yeah, next issue we're going to see Reed. But I wanted it to be a surprise. Was it a surprise? I knew he was in one of these early issues. I was I didn't know if it was three or four, because um, that's just kind of a. A fanboy thing, like, you know, to bring up, hey, Reed Richards was in World War II and Sergeant Fury once. So that can't be real anymore. Ho, ho, ho. Whatever. So I knew it happened. I'd never read it before, though. Well, there you go. Now there it's you here. go. Yeah. Um, they have, just for you, put all everyone's names and their pictures again on the front page. Yep, yep, yep. That kind of helped. That's very uh, DC Silver Age, isn't it? What they're doing it right there. It is a bit. I think more DC Bronze Age, like with uh, Justice League and their faces down the sides. Mm-hmm. Or I guess when the society and the league would team up, they would always uh, do roll calls of both on down the sides. So, um, yeah, there's that. Um, so I just so, have a few. Go, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say, so my first question is the guys that they get in a fight with in the beginning mm-hmm. and the guys that are like looking at them in awe when they, you know, come fumbling in out of dress code and all that stuff. Right. Um, are those supposed to be Americans or English people? I think Americans, right? Probably the ones in the army barracks are probably Americans. Mm-hmm. The ones in the pub are probably British. Okay. But I don't know. I mean, they're in London, so I guess it could also be, well, they're all wearing fatigues or whatever you call They're not wearing fatigues, but the, the brown uniforms, the dress uniforms. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, I guess they're all American soldiers. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, I mean we doesn't... were over there helping the, the, the British armed forces, but. We were helping them. We weren't, like, leading. Well, we don't know what year this is, do we? No, this one's pretty unhinged from continuity. I mean, other than the whole referencing um, that one battle in the first issue, and even then we don't know if the story took place years before or a day before, you know, D-Day. Right. So we've never really got any um, concrete date as to where to place all the stuff that's going on. But our involvement in World War II... I mean, until... Yeah, we were like the last. Yeah. 
So the fact that there's American troops stationed in England, I don't know. Like I said, you know, I, exactly I like super, I like supervillains better than than history, I guess. But uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know when we start stationing people in England. Well, we have um, we have like you said some jokes. One of the good big ones at the front is uh, that there's this totally unrelated sergeant dressing down his squad. You're the sorriest looking excuse for fight men I ever saw. The only way you jokers can beat the enemy isn't by shooting them. All you have to do is show yourselves. They'll laugh themselves to death. And then the howlers come by having just come off a mission and their <laughs> uniforms are in tatters. Sergeant yeah. Fury is Captain Kirk bare chesting. I, I was just going to say, you know that William Shatner read some of these issues. <laughs> so, um, I thought that, that was pretty pretty great. And then the, the private's like, what about those guys over there? And, of course, the sergeant completely ignores the fact that they look terrible. He's like, you're not afraid to sign their shoes. Yeah. Um, we do have a miscolored Gabe Jones at the bottom of page three. I can tell that he's Gabe because he's the one carrying the bugle. Oh, yeah. He's miscolored. All right. Uh, it was repaired in the, um, what's it called? The uh, Flibbity. Digital? Yeah. The Comixology collected version. Um. I also like the joke or the bit where like they all want to go out and have fun and then Nick Fury essentially invites himself and they're all kind of bummed about it. <laughs> they do not when you go out to have some fun, you do not want the boss right? along with you. Yeah, exactly. And when they get in the fight, again Gabe Jones is again carrying his bugle. Like he's carrying his bugle into a bar fight, really? Well, and he's also blowing his bugle in the first page where everybody else is shooting a machine gun. So I guess right. he's no, actually he's shooting a gun too. So he's blowing his he bugle. He has a gun too. You know, I've tried trumpet before. You got to keep those chops. I guess, but like, I think I said this in the first issue. For a long time, Gabe Jones's only claim to personality is the fact that he's the guy blowing the bugle. Yeah, but what's sad about that is that actually is um, a way for me to decipher who is who. No, no, you are very <laughs> correct, and especially if there are coloring errors. Because nobody else has, other than Dum Dum and Nick, nobody has, and I don't know if that's just because I know who they are already, nobody has a thing yet that I can latch on to. Now, um, Dino is now Italian in my brain, so that... Yeah, that, he's tall and rugged and black-haired. Yeah, but in this issue, he actually stood out because he had, like, some Italian moments with, like, he could speak Italian and he, like, talked to the, the citizens that were, you know, destitute in that empty town and he of course got mad at at the at the uh, spy and shot him down so now i remember dino because he's done something right but most of these others have a mustache okay that helps has a mustache he's a jewish guy um and the only difference between junior and reb is that one of them has freckles i think reb has the freckles maybe junior Uh, junior has the freckles yeah junior looks like jimmy olsen yeah they're both young blonde boys uh, if they're talking, Reb has a southern accent. He'll make references to the Confederacy that are somewhat ill-chosen. Um, but Junior is just the fresh kid. And uh, so they're a bit harder to tell apart. Yeah. Well, and they don't do anything individually, so it doesn't matter, I guess, at this point. Yeah. Yeah, really. And um, you're right. As this story goes on, the individual characters will do more to stand out. Mm-hmm. I can't think of Cohen doing a whole lot to stand out yet in what I've seen so far, but... I feel like everyone else has gotten gotten some time in the spotlight. Um, I thought that the whole thing with uh, Happy Sam Sawyer mm-hmm. giving them their mission and making it sound so great. Uh-huh. At ease, boys. Relax. Your captain understands. Your captain isn't angry with you. Your captain loves you. 
your captain has a little surprise for you. And they're like, oh my gosh, he's smiling. It's worse than I thought. I just thought that whole thing was delightful. Oh, yeah. And I like the, how they react to him because he's like the only guy that puts any fear in them. Right. Like even Nick, you know, they complain about how much he yells, but I don't know that they are scared of him per se. I guess they can be, but but uh, yeah, he's kind of one of them in a way. Yeah. I think, yeah, he's one of them, but he's also their commanding officer. So there's there's some trust, but also there's the, the, the rank and everything. Mm-hmm. Dugan references his mother-in-law because he also refer- he references his wife on page four. He references his mother-in-law on page ten. He likes to gripe about his marriage. Yes, he does. I like to think though that as soon as he got home from the war, he was so happy to see his wife. Yeah, probably. There's just some guys out there that like to use their wife as like a butt of jokes, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, the OSS is the precursor to the CIA. Okay, and it stands for Office of Strategic Services. If anybody actually wants to know, I couldn't remember. Not- not to be confused with the Strategic Science Reserve, which is the fictitious group in the MCU, which is the predecessor to S.H.I.E.L.D. So our boy Reed Richards is the OSS mm-hmm. guy. But and our um, Agent Carter was an SSR woman. Well, So it's just kind of funny. I'm trying to remember what issue it was where they talk about their past. 11. 11. Okay. And then so I was wondering what it said – like what he – oh, here we go. I found it. Behind the lines working with the – okay. It said he was in the OSS there too. Yay, consistency. Cool. I was wondering about that, but I and forgot to look. that was some six or seven months earlier than this. So I I doubt they had this in mind when they wrote that. But writing that, they could come up with an idea for this. Um, oh, oh, yeah, of course. I just meant that like they didn't change his job. Right. They were consistent. Yeah. So I think it's funny um, – Reed Richards is working for the OSS, which, like I said, is before the CIA. Fury will go on to work for the CIA mm-hmm. before being recruited into S.H.I.E.L.D. Which is so like that's another connection between them. The ultimate CIA. Yeah, and there's like that little panel where it's like, there goes a man. I have a hunch that Joe is going to make a name for himself someday. Which, of course, is just kind of a throwaway because we know he will. But Right. I don't know what to do. I, I don't know. I like those lines, but I also think they're kind of cheesy because it's like yeah. you don't normally say that about people. And Yeah, and it kind of seemed like they didn't get along the entire conversation. So yeah. it's it's weird he would then follow that up with, I really like that guy that I just argued with. <laughs> uh, you mentioned earlier that Dino Manelli was doing some Italian stuff. Um, I had forgotten he was actually Italian uh-huh. like from, from Italy. Because Dino, Dino Manelli is actually a, um, a pseudonym. It's not his actual name. Because right. the whole the whole conceit of the character is he is an actor that you probably know as the reader, but he's changed his name while he's in the army to um, reduce attention, and so that we don't get that actor in trouble. Right. That's the, that's the conceit behind the character. But he, even though he has an Italian last name, I didn't realize he was actually Italian. Well, he was at least born in Italy. It doesn't really say if he came from there straight into the war or what. But yeah. Um, but yeah, there's that yeah, whole bu- Italian American. That whole business where he shoots the guy down. Yes. And it's like I think they probably just mean for him to shoot the guy down, and then maybe at some point someone was like, "That's kind of cruel." So let's put a little um, bullet going the other way, and then it says, "Okay, Schmidt, your first shot missed, and nobody gets a second chance." But it's like, yeah, that didn't really happen. No, Schmidt's the blonde guy. No, I know. Okay. But I'm saying the next panel is Dino shooting him. Right. And then there's like this little red zip going by his shoulder that they could have easily added later. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> and then there's like this really long dialogue, even though 
you know, Smith isn't even in the panel anymore. And they're talking about how, ha, oh, you missed that first shot. So now I can just gun you down like the dog you are. It's so like it's a little I think- of a uh, Dino shot first kind of moment. Exactly. Um, so they're in their mission and they're moving along. They're cruising along. And on page 14, suddenly there are reporters. Uh-huh. Just like out of nowhere. And it reminded me of that Strange Tales story. When he was in the, when Torch was in the abandoned castle with, I think, the asbestos man. And there's that one panel where out of nowhere, oh. there are two reporters taking pictures. Well, in that case, remember, he invited them. I know he did invite them. It's just we didn't have any visual indication they were even present. And then, in fact, Torch comments about how abandoned the whole place looks. And then suddenly, <laughs> hello, doo doo Well, Like in a Red and Stimpy cartoon. I feel like they just hadn't gotten into the city yet at this point, so... Yeah, and these guys actually matter to the story where those guys didn't. And they're like just hunkered down or whatever because they're probably not wanting to die. But I wonder if anybody – there's like – you're right. There's a bunch of reporters though, not just the one. So I wonder if all the rest of them were like, wow, he was a German? I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Or were they all Germans? Anyway. Um, last panel, page 15. Somebody says, seven of us against a mountain full of Nazis. Man, this sure would be exciting if we were reading it in a book. <laughs> Right. That's uh, that, that's Gabe, actually. A miscolored Gabe Jones. Man, they've been messing up with Gabe Jones's coloring in this issue. <sighs> Dang, racist colorer. The previous panel, too. There's like a close-up profile on him. Yep. Man. Okay, so Gabe Jones is white in this issue. Just, you know, maybe he's being played by Robert Downey Jr. this issue. I don't know. And then I like Dum Dum's response. They all look like Tony Curtis and never be scared of anything. <laughs> but yeah, Stan does like to get meta with referencing the comics inside the comics. Oh, God. And it's going to... it's. It's coming, guys. Stan full force has not happened yet, but it's coming. <laughs> there were some captions we've been reading. It's like, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's feeling his oats with his, uh, with his narration. Mm-hmm. And the only other thing that I had to say about this is that, um, you know, the whole Massacre Mountain thing didn't really make a lot of sense to me. Like they were only the, the whole idea of Massacre Mountain is that if you came into the area, the Nazis on the mountain would shoot you. But it seems like they're only going to shoot you if they know which side you're coming from. Well, and also, how did Reed find the exit? I don't know. They never figured. Yeah, I'll assume that's from some sort of reconnaissance or. Yeah, I don't know. Aerial photos, maybe. I don't know. Maybe because the city's on the other side and they were in the city. So you can't get shot by anybody in the mountain up there. I don't know. Yeah, it's all kind of whatever. But it was a fun issue. It was fun. And, yeah. and I'm looking forward to the next, the next one, especially. And then the one after that. Good art, good action. I just want some character now, I think. Yeah, characters besides, can speak. Besides humor. humor. Speaking of characters. Yeah. Okay. This is it, folks. This is this episode and next episode, two new comic books. This, this episode is where the Marvel Universe will never be the same again. The never, Marvel ever, Universe ever. will never make sense again after this episode. <laughs> <laughs> because this is the X-Men. Yeah. Number one. Enjoy your continuity while you can, because it's over, folks. Um, do you want to talk about our connection with the X-Men before or after the recap? Um, we can do it now. I don't care. I wasn't really even planned to do it, but let's do it. I was going to ask you what your, like, what's well, your history or experience with the X-Men? Mine's the ultimate stereotype. I got into them when I was a teenager. Um, from the uh, 80s comics? From whichever issue. Well, no. Like, when I started collecting, it was kind of all the stuff you're reading now. Jim Lee. And Chris Claremont uh-huh. on Uncanny X-Men. And there's an issue where Captain America guest stars. And he's on the cover okay. with Wolverine and Black Widow, I think. Yeah. And it's like a flashback story of, you know, Wolverine and Cap in World War II or something like that. 
Right. Um, so I picked that up. I, that's why I picked it up because my hero was on the cover. And I was like, what's this? What's he doing somewhere other than his own book? I don't get it. And I read the first page is like a big splash page of him jumping right at you. And that image has been used on so many pins and buttons and posters and T-shirts since. It was like the greatest image of all time. So, yeah, I picked up the book. And then not only did I like it for the cap, I liked it for the art and the writing and the characters were interesting. So I just kept picking it up. And next thing you know, I'm also into like John Byrne. And guess what John Byrne did a big chunk of X-Men. Um, and did. yeah, you know, just like, I don't know if I like identify like, the, you know, they're freaks like me or whatever. But it seems like everybody seems to get into the X-Men as teenagers for some reason. So I was no exception. I know that I knew the basic concepts of the X-Men before the cartoon came out. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was excited to see an X-Men cartoon. But I don't know how or where I learned about them. Maybe in some of the... um, I know what it was. Because I was reading Spider-Man comics in 1990, 91, 92. And like the McFarlane series had a crossover, but it had a story that involved Wolverine for six issues. And there was a crossover with X-Force right at the end of McFarlane's run on that book. So that and other places, I got the concepts of the X-Men. And when the cartoon started, I was really excited, but the cartoon had such a haphazard um, broadcast schedule for new episodes during its first year mm-hmm. that um, I didn't see a whole lot of new episodes, and I stopped watching the show out of frustration. Um, and then when I was going through my uh, phase of trying to get some Masterworks around 92, 93, I know I had the first X-Men Masterworks because I read these first 10 at the time. And then when I got back into comics about 10 years ago, uh, one of the things I wanted to do was do an X-Men read through. And I read those first 66 issues. And um, despite the fact that there's a lot of bad comics in there, Mm -hmm. excuse me, a lot of rough reading, I should say. uh, I do still have a lot of real affection for that era. But since then, just in the last few years, um, I've been reading X-Men, you know, dedicatedly through the history and I've been listening to Jane Miles explain the X-Men and I've read everything up to I'm about to start Executioner's Song, which is a big nineteen ninety two crossover event. So um so yeah. Yeah. I really, really like the X-Men. They're they're my second favorite Marvel franchise behind Spider Man. Really? Even over the Avengers, hmm. huh? Um, I think so. Hmm. And it may be because my Avengers reading, I've read like the first I've read the Silver Age, I've read a lot of the seventies. And after uh, that, I don't know a whole lot about the Avengers. I like the Avengers a lot, but I think I have a lot more emotional investment in the X-Men. Well, the X-Men have the advantage, and this is where I pretty much know them, is they were written by Chris Claremont for a really long time. 17 years. Yeah. So it's kind of like there's a consistency there. If you like Chris Claremont's writing, which I do, there's a consistency there versus other maybe other teams or characters where you know you get a new – That's the other thing. Like when I got into Captain America, Mark Grenwald wrote – a hundred something issues in a row. So I thought that's just how it was. People just right. stuck on books. And then you only find out later that you were being spoiled that whole time. Um, so I mostly know Chris Claremont X-Men. I don't know all this early stuff. I've read X-Men number one and we'll cover it again tonight, but I haven't read a lot of these issues where they're all in the same uniform and it's just the five of them, the founders. Right. So I'm looking forward to that, even though I have a feeling, you know, it probably gets better after that, but and I've done a few, actually, I've done a few abortive podcast attempts in this era in the past mm-hmm. uh, with Dave Weeder and Michael Bailey and Blaine Dowler. Um, but none of, you know, none of those are currently moving forward as That's far as I know. Where they fail, we will succeed. 
<laughs> we will we will try to succeed or at least succeed <laughs> as long as we can. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the one thing I did want to say is that Jay and Miles call them the world's greatest superhero soap opera. And I ah. definitely agree with that. Oh, yeah. I think Spider-Man's a close second for just the soapy elements of, of superhero drama. Um, I suppose all Marvel's kind of like that, though. That's how oh, they, uh, that's why they are so fun. Yeah. All right. So the X-Men number one. Um, okay. This issue opens up with uh, a man in a chair sending out a mental <laughs> message. I am Professor X. Come to me, my X-Men. And these four, you know, brash young boys all bawled into the room. A man with wings, a man with giant feet who's swinging in from the lampshade, um, a man covered in snow, and a man with a visor over his eyes. You can't see his face. These are, of course, the angel, the beast, the Iceman, and Cyclops. Um, they pamper Xavier for a moment, then they go into some training. Um, Xavier has them do a few things to practice their powers, not going to go into the play-by-play of those moves, except that at one point, um, Iceman kind of gets, you know, bored of everything, and so Xavier's like, okay, you can go play. So he goes over and grabs some um, junk from the corner and pretends he's Frosty the Snowman, and Xavier's like, okay, now, while he's distracted, while I told him he could rest and go play, attack him! And so the Beast throws a bowling ball at him, and Iceman uh, forms an ice boomerang-shaped shoot to redirect the ball. Um, yeah. So they're all just doing their thing and it kind of reduces into a free for all. And Xavier's like, shut up and sit down boys with his mind. And they're like, Oh my gosh, what does he need? And, um, Xavier's like, Hey, there's a car pulling up with a girl in it. And they're like, Oh, girls. And Iceman's like, Oh, shucks. Um, and so they go to the window and out steps a redhead in a, um, I don't know, sort of a traveling jacket and hat and skirt. You know, she's looking kind of proper and New Englandy, upper class. Um, she comes in. She introduces herself. She is Jean Grey. Everyone kind of wolfs and drools over her. She introduces. She demonstrates that she um, can move stuff with her mind. And I was like, oh wow. Beast tries to kiss her. She throws him into the ceiling. And then Xavier's like, okay, everybody, shut up again. Got to tell you my mind. I think he's not using his mind anymore. I think at this point he's using his voice. Um, we have come together as X-Men to f- save the world from all the evil mutants. We are good mutants. There are evil mutants. And life is always a clear-cut binary. Um, so, you know, taking that cue, we transition to our first evil mutant, Magneto, who is a man in red and a violet with a helmet and he, with his powers of magnetism, takes over some sort of military base. They launch a missile into the sky, and he uses his magnets to redirect the missile and cause it to fail and sink into the ocean. And they try to shoot him and everything, but he redirects their tanks because he can move the metal around with his magnetic powers. And um, he uses his uh, Wicked Witch of Magnets power to write in the sky um, to say, like, you have to surrender or I'll kill you all. And so they do. They surrender because they don't want to die. And Magneto's like, finally, I've got this base. Now what do I do? Um, let's see. I think while he's there, we go back to the X-Men who are all putting on their uniforms. They were tra- training in earlier. Now Jean Grey has one. And um, I don't think the boys walk in on her in her room. I think she has stepped out of her room and is in more of like a lounge area. But she's sort of like preening and looking and checking herself out in her uniform and all three older guys are like 
oh my gosh, it's a girl. And um, yeah. So anyways, Xavier calls them to action and they drive to the base and they fly onto the base and they're like, sir, I know we're just teenagers, but we can save the day. And uh, Sergeant's like, aren't you a little bit young to be saving the day? Cyclops says, yes, yes, we are. And the guy says, okay, well, I can't do anything. You go ahead. And the X-Men go. And the, the problem has been that there's this magnetic field of resistance around the base. No one can get in because they, they, there's this field they can't get through. You know who can get through it? Cyclops. He uses his optic beam because that's his power. Through his visor, he can open his visor and his eyes shoot out this, this concussive force. It's a physical force beam. It is not a heat beam. And later on, when it's shown as a heat beam, that's wrong. It's a concussive force beam. I'm going to die on this hill. I will fight to the death. Um, anyways, so they break through the field. They attack Magneto. Magneto throws metal at them. Um, but they save the day somehow. And Magneto flies away with his powers of magnetism. And um, Angel can't catch up because magnets are faster than wings. And the guy in charge of the base is like, Wow, you're the X-Men? Y'all are pretty great. I think America's going to love y'all. You're always going to have a great reputation in these parts. <laughs> and they go home. Yeah, happily ever after. Happily ever after. So um, I didn't realize, I, I, of course I realized because never. I, I had thought about it before, but I hadn't thought about it in this way, that dealing with the bad guy, which is usually the crux of a superhero comic, Mm-hmm. It's like the last five pages of this book. Yeah, it's pretty quick. But there is a lot of bad guy, you know, creating the scene. But yeah, they just kind of show up and beat him up. I want to do a little commercial real quick. Um, I read this from the Oversized Collection called X-Men Grand Design. Have you heard of this, Mike? No. Okay, so Ed Piscor is a cartoonist. And he has been um, given the labor of love of doing a trilogy of duologies. So six issues total. And each issue is double length. So it's like this, it's basically 12 issues worth of page count. And with some pretty tight paneling and tight cartooning, he's basically taking the history of the X-Men and structuring it as a coherent narrative, starting from the early days of Charles Xavier and America's reaction to mutants and going, um, the first two-parter goes to the end of the Silver Age era. And then the first uh, issue of his second two-part series uh, hit this week as we're recording. So both issues will be out by now. But anyways, um, so whenever the first two issues were collected, they were collected in like a treasury edition size book, like a really large book. And the X-Men number one is also in that same collection to sort of pad out the page count probably. Mm -hmm. And he has recolored it. So Ed Piscor's own coloring which isn't drastically different from what we have. It's just slightly more moody and slightly more in, t- in keeping with the rest of the, of the, of his work. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what, when I was reading this for the comment for the uh, podcast, that's what I was reading it from. And I highly recommend the books for anyone out there who loves the X-Men. He does do some uh, tweaks to continuity to sort of make things more coherent um, and make things more like, you know, a single narrative, bring it together. But I like the changes that he does, and I kind of wish it had been like that in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, I like the mutants. I like mutants as a concept. I think, I mean, 
like you said, it's not all black and white. But I do think it's neat. Like you know, everybody's people are born with a with a power, you know, mutant ability, and some of them are going to do good, some of them are going to do bad, and and we just have these two different teams that are going to go to war with each other, and that's all great as an idea. And usually when it's like rebooted, it's always very satisfying for a while. But yeah, for some reason, these people just are so convoluted. And you mix that in with the regular Marvel universe on top of it. And it's just like, yikes. I almost wish they were like their own little world sometimes. Well, I think the, I think that part of it is they are their own little world so much. They yeah. just kind of feed on their own continuity. And, and, you know, a lot of it's kind of fun because X-Men and X-Men related concepts are where you really start to explore things like the multiverse and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, all that's way, way down the road. Right now, they're just the strangest superheroes of all, uh, I think is the tagline at the top of the, f- of the cover. Yeah. But are they all that strange? I don't know. They're, they're, know. they're, they're, I like this is, so this is another team. This is our second team in this world. And like the Fantastic Four, they all, debut as a team as characters mm-hmm. in issue number one so that's cool they're all wearing the same outfits like fantastic four which i also like quite a bit uh that doesn't last forever unfortunately but i i am a fan of the yellow black blue you know yeah is it black or is it blue because it's a really way, black through a lot of this issue spider-man blue black but uh i like the black i like the idea of them all dressing the same. I kind of wish they had kept that going, even when they, you know, expand their team. Actually, they stopped doing it before all that expansion, even. But uh, yeah, but uh, they they sometimes try and bring it back, but usually it's like something weak, like we all wear the same belt or whatever. I don't know. I like when they were all uh, in the same uniforms, but I understand that that's also because they all go to the same school and being raised by the same weirdo and everything. But you know, what it reminds me of huh? Um, there's this early issue of Spawn. And I don't know how much Spawn you know or how much Spawn the listeners know, but one of the uh, narrating techniques that McFarlane done as early Spawn is he'll do a page of just newscasters talking about stuff related to current events mm-hmm. in the comic. And um, there's this one guy, I call him my uh, my favorite gay newscaster. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and one of his themes that he talks about is fashion. And he actually comments on how the Youngbloods are rumored to be going back to a unified uniform style instead of their different looks. And he like chastised them. He's like, your different looks and variety are what attracted everyone to you in the first place. Don't be doing that. And it made me think when I was reading this X-Men book, I was thinking about that because like these guys all look the same. Yeah. And then they go changing their look uh, in a few years. Uh-huh. And every now and then they'll bring them back to a similarly themed look. The biggest one I can think of is 2001 when Grant Morrison does the new X-Men and they're all in black leather. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyways, speaking of Spawn, um, I do have that image podcast going on so y'all should go check that out yeah because we're in the future yeah this is the future as we're recording this it has not launched yet but as this comes out (laughs) i i gotta tell you it's really good guys yeah all the pouches an image comics podcast go find me at all the pouches dot um no no no, no, it's at my website johnreadscomics.com or on twitter all the pouches go look it up it's pretty cool yeah 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 so anyways Uh, x-men x-men so have you ever read Strange, I'm sorry, Amazing Adult Fantasy 14? 14? No. Yeah, so there's this tie I have, and I don't know why I have, but I have. I knew about this before reading X-Men this this time around, not in general. But there was a story called The Man in the Sky, and it was about a guy whose father worked at an atomic plant, and he was born a mutant, and he has the ability to do telekinesis and read thoughts, and everybody hated him. Like, they found out about it, and they wanted to kill him. But then at the end of the story, because it's a short story, um... Someone else gets into his mind and goes, you're not alone. There are others just like us. 
and we're going to fly you to us now and you'll be part of a group and be awesome. And he's like, yay. And that was the end. And I don't know if I think this guy maybe comes back later. I could be wrong about that, but way, way, way later. But this was like, like brought into continuity. Yeah. This was like Stan, maybe where he got this idea. I mean, obviously he also wrote this story, but uh, it's like kind of a precursor to the X-Men or, you know, you could even argue that maybe that was professor X talking to this guy or whatever. So, yeah. So that was like in 19, uh, 62 also that was in 62, 62 so yeah. last year and then he came up with this and of course you probably heard that he re- how he came up with the x-men is he just got tired of trying to figure out unique origins and i was scratching my head going unique origins like everybody's exposed to radioactivity i mean <laughs> that's so far been all our origins i guess not thor but but uh yeah he just decided oh, you're right he just decided like i i don't want to keep coming up with ideas so what if they're just born that way right but you are correct. I just looked it up. Tad Carter, yeah, um, does come in in the X Men: The Hidden Years, okay, comics, okay, and he's part of a group called The Promise or something like that. Oh, so that wasn't Professor X in that story. Then it was a group called The Promise, or or that was Tad Carter, and then he's he's later, I think, possibly made part of The Promise. I don't know, whatever that is. I have not read those issues, but yeah, X Men: The Hidden Years. He's brought into continuity. That's fun. Says Tad's, okay. Tad's rescuer was later revealed to be named Tobias Messenger, who had founded a group of mutants called The Promise. And yeah, we don't have to keep talking about this one little story, but I just thought it was neat. If if you are an X Men fan and you've never read that story, you should probably read it because that was kind of like the uh, the prequel, I guess. Mm-hmm. Sort of. No superheroes or anything, but. So this issue gets a lot of background to it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say retcons, um, but background that's not present. And one of the you know. All of these four guys are going to get stories during the Silver Age of how they came together to be the X-Men, how they discover the Ed Powers, and how they got brought into the team. Mm -hmm. The person who doesn't get that story is Jean Grey. Okay. And um, Jean Grey's background is actually never really fully fleshed out, but it is often depicted and shown um, that she actually already knew Xavier. And she's been working with Xavier for a while in her life. Oh. Um, even whenever Scott was still at an orphanage and Xavier went to go check on him, Jean Grey was there. So it's kind of strange and kind of weird. And it, it, if that has been fully fleshed out, I'm not aware of it. I just haven't gotten to the books yet. But I was doing some research and I don't think that it's really that delineated on exactly how all that happened. But um, but yeah, it's oh. kind of weird because when she comes in, everyone thinks this is her first day on the job. Well, he tells them but that. Yeah, but Gene and Xavier have known each other for a while. Well, one, I can guarantee you it's been fleshed out somewhere because there's no well untapped at this point. I don't know where, <laughs> but there's got to be somewhere. So someone write in and tell us what miniseries talks all about Gene Gray from birth to now. But uh, what do you think of, like, just in general, if not this issue in particular, I think like a lot of the characters in this particular issue are a little off or not how they will be later, especially Beast, which we can get into. But what do you think? Yeah. In, what do you think in general when compared to maybe other leaders of groups in the Marvel universe or in any universe? What do you think of Professor X as like a leader when he is in that in role? this issue or in general? <laughs> in general, like either way, to me, he's like this huge kind of creepy dude, and I don't know if I ever well, really yeah, like okay. him. Okay, so he he is very strange. And he's often a jerk. Mm-hmm. And he is very authoritarian, uh-huh. his way or the highway. Yeah. Um, and early 
it comes, it seems to come from a place of knowledge and a place of strength and a place of wisdom. But as you go along and you realize just how much he's making it up as he goes, <laughs> yeah, it becomes less so. Um, so I think Xavier is a very flawed human being who has a lot of good ideas and a lot of hangups. Um, I'm not going to say I dislike the character as a character, but I think I would have really strong issues with him as a person if I were to know him. Does you, that make sense? You wouldn't, if you were on his team, you maybe wouldn't follow him into hell if he asked you to? Yeah. And like, like whenever Cyclops first starts like countermanding him, uh huh. Um, during the like late 70s, early 80s, I'm kind of backing Cyclops on that. Yeah. I mean, Xavier, why are you giving Wolverine demerits? Stop that. Yeah. And in this, like you said, this issue in particular, he's very. He's very stern. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised if he told someone to go fetch his crop. You know, like mm-hmm. he's just. He's just like. There's really kind of nothing human about him, and and he does seem really inhuman. Not not to coin a term, he just seems really inhuman in this. Like I was, I was thinking like maybe he was actually envisioned as quadriplegic in this issue mm-hmm. because of how little he moves. Yeah, his hands never move, do they? I'm his trying. hands, I, I, I found some panels. There are places where he's like holding his chin and stuff. So his arms can move. Yeah. But he seems to not use his body a whole lot. As opposed to like, you know, a really active Xavier from the waist up, you know, really gesticulating and moving his arms around and stuff. That's not this guy. And then the X and the boys anyway are so very Fantastic Four right now. Mm-hmm. Um, just like that constant, we have to always move and destroy things. Particularly, uh, Beast and Iceman are now the new uh, thing in Human Torch. I think, uh, at least that's Stan's idea. Beast in particular seems completely off. Like, because we know later he'll become like Mister Smart, sophisticated guy. That kind of contradicts the fact that he's a beast. Uh, but right now he's just so the thing in personality. And then we find out that that's a bit of a put on. Yeah, we'll find out later that he was just scared to to show how smart he was or um, something. Yeah, they. I know that some of the letters are going to talk about how they don't seem to have a whole lot of individual personality, uh-huh. and that the Beast feels like a knockoff of the thing. Um, so I think it's issue three where Stan starts to put some individual voicing into them, and we'll see how it how, how well it goes at that when we get there. Um, but that's where the Beast is going to become, you know, high vocabulary, and Scott's going to become more morose and dreading his cursed eyes and all that sort of stuff. Right. Sadly, Jean's only personality trait through all of this would be that she is the woman of the group. Yeah. Bobby but, has some good stuff going on. but uh, Bobby being the youngest one, yeah, it's, it's... So he's gay now, right? Yes. Okay. So I guarantee you they didn't think about that in this issue. But I do think it was right. kind of interesting that on page eight, panel one, when they're all looking out the window because Jean's coming, he's like, a girl, big deal. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I mean, that's, right. that's just a total retcon, but uh, yeah. I like that too. And it, it, when I read it, it made me think about Johnny Storm and how his the writers can't decide if he's past puberty or not. Mm-hmm. But um, Yeah, how old are, are all these guys, you think? Um, I mean, Bobby's the youngest, I would say obviously. That, uh, Bobby is probably 14 or 15, and the others are probably 17, 18. Okay. So old enough to understand just, how to hang out in front of a girl and not go crazy, I guess. You would think so, but Stan's trying to write Teen Eaters. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's like they've never seen one before. It's really rather awkward. But I do like that she <laughs> I like that she handles herself quite well. She does. She uh she, you know, is able to push them off and and whenever Hank wolfs in, um, I was thinking about the fact that 
he is going to develop some very real feelings for Jean that are going to get explored um, or that did get explored recently in all new X-Men. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where you have the teen X-Men in the future. So even though he's being a Mac, you know, rude here, it he is going to tr- actually develop some attractions for her that kind of sticks for a while. Um, is it Iceman that makes the suicide joke on page nine? Suicide joke? I don't remember that one. Maybe. Yeah. Let's see. You know something, Warren? If I had your line, I'd shoot myself. Oh. Suicide jokes were so common in the 60s. Like, people writing in the letters columns. Man, if that's something, something, I'd shoot myself. And it's popular slang again. Like, KMS is shorthand for kill myself. It's just kind of like, you know, a sort of despairy, but humorously despairy emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, like, oh my gosh, this is so terrible, KMS. <laughs> but But yeah. It's it's kind of weird suicide jokes. It's a thing. Yeah. Well. Um, I made the Wicked Witch of Magnetism joke in the synopsis. So, Magneto. Magneto. Um, he he came awfully quick after um, our other magnet guy. Uh, the Metal Master. The Metal Master. But Metal Master was way better because he took over the entire world by the end of the yes. issue. Magneto can't even take over this base. Master of Magnetism. Whatever. Whatever. Uh, and he, has to use, he has to use a machine to enhance his power. He did use a machine to enhance his power. I thought that was interesting. <laughs> also, Stan still doesn't quite understand magnets because there's this whole business with creating like magnet nets and stuff that I guess you could argue that maybe they all have metal watches on and stuff. So that's what's stopping them from moving. I don't know. But like he's just like putting little wavy lines around people and and they're stuck in a ball. I don't, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it's like. If you have two magnets that have opposite polarities, no, same polarities, and you push them together, they're not going to want to go together. They're going to be like, there's this invisible force pushing them apart. But a magnet and other stuff is not going to have that same repellent characteristic. I mean, magnetism is an incredibly powerful uh, power to have. So, like, adding all this extra weird nonsense is just not even necessary. Because he could – Yeah. There's, like, these panels where he's blowing the entire – you know, blowing off the entire – the army, like, just making them fly away from him with magnetism. But, like, you could also just write that as, like, they all had guns in their pockets and and he, uh, you know, made them fly away that way or something. I don't know. They'll figure it out. And Magneto does get a power upgrade later. Can I tell you how he gets a power upgrade? Sure. Well, it starts out with him being de-aged to a baby. Okay. <laughs> that sounds like he a promising com- story. <laughs> he gets de-aged to a baby for a while. And then whenever he's re-aged, he's re-aged to a younger self. Mm-hmm. And being at a younger age, he is stronger and more powerful than he is in these early comics. Okay. So for that's whatever that's worth. I guess he's old now then. I guess. I mean, yeah. he doesn't look like Ian McKellen old. He looks like a, you know, 30-year-old or something. Right. It's hard to say because he's wearing that helmet the entire time and all you can really see is like a chin. He could be old under there. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, I don't know what else I really have to say. Like like you said, it kind of goes really fast. They just show up and scare him away. He gets away, so they obviously want to reuse him. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. I had a few other like random comments on random things that happened, but they're not really that important. I guess the one other thing I should mention about this is that there's no hint from Xavier that he knew Magneto. Okay. And and yet he was in their minds the entire fight. So he he knows of Magneto right. now. 
Now, maybe he didn't realize that this helmeted dude was his old friend Magnus. Uh huh. But also, Magneto had no indication that these were the students of his old friend Charles. So there are ways to explain why they wouldn't mention each other. The most obvious explanation is that Stanley didn't know that yet. <laughs> well, but, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But in universe, there are ways to explain why they don't acknowledge each other in this story. But yeah, well, so, same thing. Like Reed just happened to hear about Doctor Doom at this one time at band camp, and then later we find out. No, actually, I was there when he made his equations that blew up his face, and I tried to warn him that he was gonna blow up his face, but he didn't listen to me, and he blew up his face. None of that was brought up <laughs> in Doctor Doom's first appearance. But hey, that's called embellishing, I guess. So my last thought about this issue is that we finally have a first issue of a comic character with a villain who will actually mean something. Wow. Think about all of our first issues. Is that true? None of the first issues matter. I mean, Mole Man, yeah, he's been used a lot, but it's not like he's a big menace to the Fantastic Four. No. The Chameleon? No. Same. Um, the Stone Men from Saturn? And actually, it's not even the Chameleon. It's it's the guy who killed Uncle Ben, whoever that is. They don't even give him a name. Oh, yeah. The, the burglar. Um, Stone Men of Saturn? Um, yeah. What's Ant-Man's? Uh, ants? I can't think of Ant-Man's first. Ants? Something like that. Well, it was the non-superhero issue where he almost died from ants, so that's ants. Oh, yeah, just the man in the anthill, yeah. Yeah. I was uh-huh. trying to think of that. What, what did he go up against in, in issue 35? I can't remember. <laughs> I can't either. And then Iron Man went up against Wong Chu. Wow. So, yeah. That's cool. And the Magnetos I, are going to be a big deal. Like their biggest deal. Yeah, like by far. Like a really big deal for the entire Marvel Universe big deal. He's the Darth Vader to their Luke Skywalker. I mean, yeah. the yin and yang of mutant whatever. Um, yeah, it was okay. Cool issue. Yeah, I thought it was pretty solid. Which I'm, I'm leads gl- us to our um, maybe less cool issue. Uh, yeah, definitely less cool issue. Poor Thor. I think we both realized today that Thor hasn't been very good at all, ever. But This is the last issue of this not-so-great run. Yeah. Okay, and I get to summarize it, so yay me. (laughs) Journey into Mystery, number 96, called Define the Magic of Mad Merlin. And it's by Stan Lee and Joe Sinnott, with scripts by Robert Bernstein. Or Bernstein, maybe. Um, Jeez. Okay, so it starts out... Well, actually, this is one of those uh, Pulp Fiction-y Thor stories for some reason they do those every once in a while where like there's all this stuff told out of order so i'm just going to summarize it in order or in a in an order so to me it kind of the earliest thing that happens is thor is x-raying a patient and i guess he hears over the radio because he's always got the radio on for some reason that the school bus fell into the river or yeah and so he's like excuse me a second i'm going to go lock myself in the laboratory in my laboratory um and not be suspicious. So he does that and he flies out the window and he goes to the bus that's underwater and he wraps it with a steel cable and he attaches that steel cable to his hammer and he throws his hammer. And like he's been doing lately, he has that move where he can just throw his hammer and it magically goes wherever he wants it to. So it takes the bus right back to the school where it came from. And then the ma- and then the hammer somehow magically unties itself and goes back to Thor. Then Thor goes back, but by now it's been like an hour or more. And he comes out of the laboratory as uh, Donald Blake and his nurse. I almost said secretary. Whoa. Me too, Mike. Me too. His nurse, um, Jane Foster, took me a second to figure that out, is sitting there in an empty, otherwise empty office because all his patients have left. And she gives him kind of a 
uh, an earful telling him that, you know, if you're going to keep office hours, you actually should be here and not just lock yourself in a laboratory. And by the way, why'd you lock yourself in there? And how come when I banged on it for like an hour, you didn't answer? That was really weird. You're kind of nuts. And he's just like, oh, if only you knew. Um, anyway, then we go to like some archaeologists or scientists or museum people or something. And, and they found the sarcophagus or the coffin of the actual Merlin. Um, they know this because I'm not sure. And they open it, because why wouldn't you, only to find that Merlin is not rotted or dust or a skeleton. He's actually just like completely fine and fresh and pristine. Like he just laid down there an hour ago and he's sleeping or, you know, his eyes are closed. And I don't know if they assume he's dead or what, but they all decide to go into another room to talk about it. And when they're in that other room, he wakes up and he thinks to himself as he rubs his evil hands together that he was never dead. His genius allowed him to make a potion that allowed that, you know, put him into a sleep state in his airtight coffin only to be awoken if someone opened it and they did so now he's merlin and by the way you know how merlin was the guy who like helped king arthur and got him the throne and made him one of the greatest kings of ever well that was all a lie haha ha, really the entire time i was just trying to take over the world and i was latching myself on to someone i thought that could help me do it i'm really evil and now he then he reads the newspaper and he finds out that we're going to launch a satellite into space and he decides he knows what that means so he goes over there and oh the other thing is he's not really a magician this whole time we knew everything about merlin we knew nothing about merlin he's really evil and he's not a magician he's actually one of those earth mutants he says and he has the ability he has the three t's he can teleport telekinesis and telepathy so he goes to where they're going to launch this satellite and he puts it off course with his telekinesis and this of course ends up on the radio again and who hears it but Donald Blake. So he turns to Thor and he goes out there and he flies into space and he puts it back on the right course. And then he's talking to the scientists later and they're like, yeah, that was not a malfunction. Someone must have done that. So Thor immediately thinks, oh, it's obviously Loki because it's always Loki. Every other issue, it's Loki. Plus, I don't know anybody else who does magic. So I'm going to go to Asgard and ask Loki. And he goes to Asgard and Loki is still bound against the mountain. And for once, he actually tells the truth and he tells Thor, no, no. It's this guy named Merlin. I've been watching the whole time. Right now he's at the White House trying to find the president so he could take over America. You better go stop him. So Thor's like, okay, I'll do that. So he goes to the White House and he confronts Merlin and they get into a fight. And Merlin has like, like he throws the Washington Monument at Thor, but Thor like puts it back where it's supposed to go. And then he somehow uses his telekinesis to make the Abe Lincoln statue like alive, even though that's not how telekinesis works. And like... Thor just kind of fans him back into his seat by spinning his hammer really hard. And then he's like, you know what? This guy is matching me trick for trick. This is what Thor says. So I'm going to come up with a new idea. And he turns himself into Donald Blake. And Merlin's like, what? What'd you do? And he's like, hear me, Merlin. Not only am I super strong and I have an awesome hammer, but I can shape change into anything. I mean, sure, I picked a, you know, skinny guy with a cane and stuff as someone to attack you with. But trust me, I could turn to anything if I wanted to. So Merlin's like, oh, don't kill me. What do I do? What do I do? And he's like, you go back, you take more of that potion and you get back in your coffin and I'll close it. And then this will be the end of the issue. And so he does that. And then the issue's over. Uh, <laughs> I think. Hey, Mike. Was that really I hate the end to tell of the you issue? This. Yeah. It's not even Merlin. I know that. Okay. Yeah. Can I talk about, can I talk about that for a minute? Yeah, of course. If you don't, I will. Yeah. Because 
Merlin is a thing in the Marvel Universe. Merlin does exist. Merlin is a um, bunch of things in the Marvel Universe. Yeah. I think Captain Britain is the first time that he becomes like a really big element. Um, but no, no, no. That's, that's lies on top of lies because, um, Black Knight has stuff that deals with Merlin. But I know him from Captain Britain from all the stuff that Alan Grant and not Alan Grant crap. Um, Alan Davis and, um, Chris Claremont. Yeah. With everything that they do. So anyways, this guy is a guy named Mahayogi. Uh huh. And, um, he, He's just a guy who, like, lives a long time. He may actually be a mutant, like he says in this. I didn't see anything in my research that contradicted that. It, it explained why he has some powers. But um, so, th- speaking of the Black Knight of Indigo, the Black Knight in the Avengers is the nephew of a Black Knight who's, like, the Avengers bad guy. And that Black Knight is a descendant of another Black Knight from the 1950s mm-hmm. comics who existed at, you know, King Arthur's time. And that Merlin was real. And at one point, that Merlin and that Black Knight go off to fight against Morgan Le Fay. And while they're gone, Mahayogi comes along and pretends to be Merlin. So in the flashbacks, when he's like with King Arthur, mm-hmm. that is really King Arthur. And that's just him pretending to be Merlin. So that's that's that. And um, I think Merlin comes back and doesn't like that he's there. And that's part of how he ends up in the sarcophagus. But anyways. so uh, So there's... Every universe has a Merlin, and then there, uh, and then there's an omniverse Merlin who is the weird, creepy, white-haired guy that B- Captain Britain always ends up fighting, and that's like the amalgamation of, of all Merlins or something like that. So yeah, that Merlin I know he goes by many guises. Yes, um, but he's like so. There's like a there's like a hierarchy of Merlins. There's like this head honcho Merlin that's kind of a jerk and always the main bad guy and stuff. And then there's like within the universes themselves, including Earth 616, which is where this is all taking place. There's a Merlin. And then on top of that, like you said, that Merlin goes off to do something with Black Knight and this mad Merlin takes his place. So that's why we think this is Merlin, even though he's not Merlin. Is that enough Merlin? That's enough Merlin. He's a professional Merlin impersonator. Yes, exactly. Um, When they find the coffin at the beginning of this story, Mm -hmm. You know what that reminds me of? The black sarcophagus that was discovered in Egypt recently. Did you hear about this? No. Okay. So they found, uh, and I'm looking at the very first page, the splash, the splash page, where they're like, oh, we found the body of Merlin in the sarcophagus. So in reality, in the really real world, they found this black sarcophagus buried in Egypt mm-hmm. with no identification information. Right. And so they took a while to open it. And while the news was going around that it existed, but they hadn't opened it yet, the entire internet was telling them, don't open it. It's obviously cursed. Uh-huh. It's got Merlin so, in it. So, yeah. Um, it, it, probably, it might have Merlin in it, but it actually has bones and red liquid that people actually want to drink. I think it's like poison. Okay. Like stagnant water mixed with chemicals for whatever that's thousands of years old. And why would you ever put that in your body type of water? But, uh-huh. um, but yeah. My, my, my history mind started wondering how they knew that this was Merlin's coffin. Like, yeah. what is it about this coffin that says this is Merlin's coffin? Well, there's a C and a star and an O on it. Oh, you're right. There is it a moon, maybe? I don't know. It looks like a C, you're right. Does that tell you Merlin? Does that mean anything? Well, he does have stars and moons all over his little outfit. Also, they call him Mad Merlin right out of the gate. Like, this is the body of Merlin, the Mad Wizard. And it's like, is that really the tale? I never really thought of him that way but i no i I've, I've seen it depicted as kind of eccentric 
Okay. Well, maybe that's what they're talking about. I don't know. Like the King Arthur, um, the Sword in the Stone Disney tale. Yeah. He's kind of But like, I, I've never really thought of it. And then I was reading this further and they're talking about how he was evil and stuff. And I was wondering if that was them, if that's how we're supposed to have always thought of Merlin, that he was like this weird evil guy. Or is that them revealing things to us that we never knew before? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Because this story definitely wants us to think this is the real Merlin. Mm-hmm. And he's he's a crackpot. So I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah. Don's Blake. Don, Don's Blake. Don Blake's medical practice suffers in this story because he's out being Thor. Uh-huh. And I don't think we've done that story beat before. Um, I feel like we have, but I couldn't tell you where. So maybe we haven't. It's definitely not the last time. No. But like him out being Thor, no. patients walked out and Jane got pissed. I feel like he hasn't been a doctor in a while. Yeah. And yeah, yeah that's just not. all very Clark Kent stuff. Yeah. It is. But I, I actually kind of like Jane Foster in this. She's actually being a professional. She's calling him on his bull stuff mm. and telling him, you know, hey, if you want to be a doctor, you have to open the door when I knock. And you have to finish your fluoroscope procedures on your patients. And you can't just let them leave because they're going to go to other doctors. Yeah, I liked all and that, I, too. Um, that's like her saying more than one sentence. So that was cool. <laughs> more than one sentence and not about Thor. And not about Thor, right? I wish he would had a had a actually, like, you know, responded to her in some way. Right. Instead of saying, no responsibility, eh? And then they flash back to the whole bus thing that I talked about in the beginning. And then it's like, he just keeps thinking, poor Jane, she's so stupid. But, like, he never actually argues with her. So that was kind of unsatisfying. Yeah, it actually seems to be that he just, like, sits there and lets her talk and never answers her. Mm-hmm. Man, I'd be so angry if I were her. Mm-hmm. Um, then on page three, whenever he's doing the whole bus rescue, he's down in the water and he's talking about how he needs to get back up to breathe. Uh-huh. I didn't think Thor had to breathe. Well, he flies it around in space. It, yeah, right? That's going to be kind of hard if you got to breathe. Yeah. So Also, remember how Loki hates going in the water? Like, it's his major weakness. They had that one issue. Yeah, I'm really curious to see if that ever happens again because I never, I know, I never heard of that before. <laughs> Messes up his ponytail. Um, Merlin looks like such a stereotype in this yeah. issue. It's kind of sad. He's even got the. He is a, he's like he literally looks like the dude from Fantasia, only with brown hair. Yeah, yeah. He is a cartoon wizard, and it's kind of bad. Yeah. Um, he actually, I was going to call out his fabric because, like. Merlin and Arthur and everything, whatever history that's allegedly based on, was like 1,500 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't have thought that 1,500 years ago we'd have fabric with like little moons and stars sewn onto it. But then I looked up King Arthur, and there's like a really ancient depiction of him. And on the robe, there are crowns and stars. So, never mind. <laughs> so, I said that all three issues we covered tonight will have connectivity to some other thing. Uh This is the weakest one and may not even be real connectivity. But page seven, he says, nobody in medieval times suspected. By the way, he calls his own time period medieval times right out of the gate. But that's okay. Suspected I was one of the mutants on Earth. Now, we just read X-Men number one. That said, these come out at the exact same time. So is he really, um, you know, taken off of that? Or is he just throwing out the word mutant because it's his thing to say? Um, I mean, I'm willing to deal with the idea that he's a mutant. Did Stanley just have a fascination with his new idea and decide to throw it into a bunch of comics? Possibly. <laughs> well, that's fine, too, if he did it on purpose. I wasn't sure if he even did it on purpose. Because like, especially since in X-Men number one, um, 
Professor X says he's probably the oldest mutant or the first mutant that he knows of. And that all mutants come from hanging out or having associations with atomic energy. So I, I can see in my head that Stan Lee like bursts into the bullpen one day. He's like, mutants, guys, okay. So if you want to have a person with powers, but you don't want to give them a background or an origin story or have them get bitten by a radioactive factory or whatever, just call them a mutant. It means they grew up and they had the power come about because their genetics are weird. And um, But that said... Robert Robert Bernstein takes the idea and says, okay, Merlin's a mutant. Okay, so maybe Robert Bernstein did it. But that in this case, Merlin already has a pretty set backstory with the ability to have powers. Yes. So you don't have to call him mutant. You don't have to go out of your way to have him say, I tricked everybody. I was never a magician. I was a mutant the whole time. So that makes me think that it is associated with X-Men, possibly. But I don't know. I don't know. He's ne- um, he's never in the Brotherhood, as far as I know. <laughs> as far as I know, you're right. I don't think he's ever in the Brotherhood. Okay, so I felt like this story was the exact same story as the Mad Pharaoh from two months ago. The Mad Pharaoh. God, I don't even remember that one already. They found a, a tomb, and Iron Man helped oh, them open Iron the Man. tomb. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking Thor. Like, when did he fight a Pharaoh? I'm sorry. Yeah, Iron Man story. The Mad Pharaoh. And they opened up the tomb, and it's the Pharaoh who was in suspended animation for centuries and is alive again. Yeah. And it's just so much of this felt the same as that. You had the Mad Pharaoh, you had the Mad Merlin. And guess who wrote the other story? The same guy. Robert Bernstein, yeah. And this fight was not even fun. Like, I kind of just found it annoying. Oh, the fight with Merlin and Thor? Yeah, it's like, that's what half this issue, half this story is, is fighting, which, mm-hmm. which can be cool. But in this case, it's like, you know, he breaks the monument and then Thor magically puts it back without harming it. And then, like, telekinesis somehow makes it so a statue can stand. And then when he, when Thor, like, blows him back into his seat, that somehow stops him from standing anymore. And it's just like, yeah. this is really dumb. This whole thing is dumb. And Merlin drops a building on him, so he has to lay down in a ditch just oh. like Sandu did. Oh, yeah. I remember that, too. Yeah, yeah. And Merlin knows what a 1963 is. He looks at the newspaper and sees the year is 1963. Um our current counting of years wasn't adopted until after Merlin's alleged time in history. So oh, he wouldn't know. I mean, he knows what 1963 is. He knows he's from the medieval time. He knows that a satellite is important and presidents are important. <laughs> he, he doesn't know what JFK looks like because he's in this issue and he walks right past him. But Oh, that was so cute. I saw that and little Caroline was there and I was like, oh, and did you know that Caroline Kennedy still does stuff? What? Like she was in Obama's administration, she was the ambassador to Japan for both of his terms. Oh well, that you know that's our royalty, so I'm sure they, whoever's left, still doing stuff. Yeah, I just I, I don't know. I, I, you see John Kennedy in the comics a lot. I really thought about like his daughter being in the comics. Like this little person, this little girl in this comic book is a depiction of an actual little girl at the time who is now a 50 year old woman with an accomplished career. Now, if you ever do your Malibu podcast, you'll get to cover Chelsea Clinton. I don't know if I've ever read a single Malibu comic besides Malibu's publication of Image Comics. She was in Prime a couple times. Okay. Oh, the Ultraverse? Oh, yeah. Wasn't that Malibu? Oh. It was Malibu, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, like Malibu did stuff before that. I think Malibu actually published um, Ninja Turtles okay. for a while, too. But um, I have never read the Ultraverse. Is, is it worth it? Should, should I read the Ultraverse? Well, I liked Prime a lot. I can't say I read any of the others, but... Maybe, I, maybe I'll throw it in the 90s list. Prime was kind of Captain Marvel-y. There was... Um, Okay, so he goes to see Loki, uh-huh. and he's flying along. There seems to be no mechanical failure. Some outside force must have affected this rocket. Can it be 
Loki. Mm-hmm. And in my head, I heard, could it be Satan? <laughs> I like how he knows there's no mechanical failure just because he's on the outside, like pushing it around too. But Right. And he's Thor. I'm sure something with his hammer lets him sense it. Yeah. And, my hammer senses and, are tingling. And Loki's very helpful in this issue. No. Okay. 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 So we're going to see Loki again next episode in the Avengers number one. He's going to be on the Isle of Silence. And what I want to imagine is that like, okay, so Loki is imprisoned against this wall and teacher catches him talking when he's supposed to be quiet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so banishes him to the Isle of Silence because he wasn't behaving in the corner like a good punished boy should. And he's probably like, but but I was talking to Thor. I was helping him. I don't care. Shut up. You're not allowed to talk. Dang it. He asked me a question. I don't want to be rude. The one time I'm good and they punish me. Right. Right. Um. Yeah. So Merlin was dumb. Yeah. But he was also pretty darn powerful. Yeah. I mean, if he is a, if Thor- he is a mutant, he has three things, three powers. Yeah, and he can shoot lasers out of his eyes. Oh, four powers. But Thor shapeshifts, like you said, into a thin <laughs> man with a walking stick, and suddenly Merlin is scared. Merlin is scared of shapeshifting. I don't buy it. Yeah. This feels like the end of the first scroll issue. Yeah. What could he turn into that would not be stopped by the four T's? Or three right. T's, whatever they are. Yeah, I know. The whole thing's weird. Oh, I forgot the ending actually is him in surgery and, and what's-her-face is like, well, you, you're horrible at keeping hours, but you're the greatest surgeon of all time. It's like, thanks. Something. Yeah. Which, you know, is a nice little... Yeah. I, I don't know. Restoration of something. So, Mike, hmm. deep breath. <sighs> Next issue, Jack Kirby starts. Yay. And Tales of Asgard will start. All right. And I don't think Jack Kirby's first issue is necessarily stellar, but I think it's a step in the right direction. And the book climbs from here. Cool. So. And also he'll be in Avengers from now on. And he's always awesome in Avengers. Yeah. Yeah. He's a Superman of the Avengers. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, we're not done with July yet. We have two more episodes covering this month. And next episode will be another major super team. It's going to be really fantastic. Yeah. We're going to get more and more comics, and then we'll never be done with the month. Ever. (laughs) Right? We appreciated it while we had it, but pretty soon it's going to be like 40 episodes just to get through a month's worth of comics. I was talking to our good friend Blaine, who was on our um, discussion of the Fantastic Four film. Mm -hmm. And he mentioned how quickly we're covering time. And and I was like, yeah, it's nice to think about how quickly we're covering time, but... There's no way we're catching up. Like, we cannot have any goals. What we, we cannot allow ourselves to try to think in terms of, oh, we have to get through this more quickly because, no. <laughs> right. No, we can't do that. So I want to send a, a shout out and a thank you to Demer Webb, who followed us on Facebook. Um, you can follow people on Facebook now. Um, yeah. Not, uh, oh. not just like the page, but like follow without liking. Uh-huh. Or follow without friending them. Yeah. Yeah. So that is there. And uh, I think I'll do the Twitter likes uh, or Twitter follows next episode. So just for fun, I pulled yeah. up the year I was, the year and month I was born to see what releases were out there. And there's like 72. And if you, di- if you divide <laughs> that by three, which is basically what we've been doing right now, it will take us 24 episodes to get through one month. <laughs> one month of comics. Yeah. In 24 episodes, that's half a year to get through your birth month. 
if we ever get there. But yeah, if we ever got, we would there. never catch up. No, no. And that's assuming there's as much to talk about, or that all these qualify. I mean, I didn't go through each one. Like some of them might not be superhero books, right? Like right. Crazy Magazine number thirteen and fourteen, Crypt of Shadows. Probably, we wouldn't cover that. Probably most of them. Most of them look to be very colorful spandexy Marvel adventures. Yeah. Yikes. Alrighty. Well, um, I guess that wraps us up. You want to tell them what they can do to, to talk to us and everything? Here's what you can do. To talk to us, you can write us at podcast at makearsmarvel.com. We've been getting kind of a nice little stream of emails since we did our mailbag episode. So I'm wondering if people were like, oh, okay, we're not just wasting their time, which is cool. Uh, we've got a few this week even. And in the meantime, you could also go to makearsmarvel.com which is our official website for this show you can find the feed there in whatever form you want to take it um, and we always have images that go along with what we're talking about and uh, next episode we continue with July um, so please be here for that you can also catch me over at all the pouches and image comics podcast and until Magneto becomes leader of the X-Men make, make ours marvel, marvel.